This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Conversation. My name is Brian Salvatore, and joining me on the show today is author Jason Fry. If you are a longtime member of the Mets Internet slash Mets Twitter, you obviously know who Jason Fry is. He is one of the voices behind Faith and Fear and Flushing, one of the truly great Mets websites out there. It is so full of passion and personality, and it's it's just it's unlike any other Mets site out there, and I mean that in the best possible way. It is one of my favorite destinations on the internet. When I want to feel good about being a Mets fan, even during bad times, it's great. Greg Prince and Jason do such a wonderful job with that site. Please check it out if you haven't before. But I actually know Jason better as a Star Wars writer. He has done writing for all sorts of Star Wars stuff, whether it's with the website whether it is uh, role-playing games that are in the Star Wars universe or his novelization of The Last Jedi 
or some of his uh, middle grade novels. He's done a ton with Star Wars, and I am a huge Star Wars nerd, as is Jason, and I'm a huge Mets nerd, as is Jason. And so, as you can imagine, we were thick as thieves in about two minutes, and so we have a really fun conversation about fandom and sort of getting on the other side of fandom and what that means, and of course, lots of nerdy, nerdy, nerdy Star Wars talk. So, enjoy. All right, so I am joined in the pod today by Jason Fry. Jason is a writer of all stripes, Star Wars and Mets. That's really all I care about. So if someone is involved with both Star Wars and the Mets, they are good people in my book. So, Jason, where are you calling in from today? I'm in. I'm here in Brooklyn. Okay. Really waiting for MRI news, like all the rest of us. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great to talk to somebody else in the in the highly weird, but not non-existent Star Wars Mets Venn diagram. I'm always I'm always excited when there's some other poor deluded soul who is part of this. So thank you. I feel seen. And if you, if you were really into DC Comics or the Pixies, we'd be like long lost brothers because that's those are like my four concentric circles there. So not not DC, but yeah, I do have you know a ton of pixie stuff from back in the day okay so so oh, look yeah. we we are we are long lost friends meeting for the first time so oh, yeah we wore out bone <laughs> machine surfer rosa all exactly i hear you so um for you and I, I like to ask this question whenever i'm talking to anybody who's a big baseball fan and a big something else fan which came first was it baseball or was it star wars for you uh baseball by a year um well almost a year so i saw star wars in in 77 i was eight years old so that was which was just the perfect age for it and you know as a kid who was already interested in in telling my own stories and figuring out how stories worked it was it was literally a life-changing before and after moment i'd never imagined there could be stories like that and it you know it affected how i thought about those things and did things from that day forward i'd become a star wars i'm, I'm sorry a baseball fan a little earlier and I was always a Mets fan. Um, the first memory I have that I can, you know, that I, I can, I swear is real and not reconstructed is my mom leaping up and down, screaming and yelling for rusty stop. So, <laughs> you know, the first time around, so there, there's right. only a certain period that can be. And um, I started, <clears throat> the other thing that did, I started collecting baseball cards um, on a lark in 76 um, and that became that unlocked Met fandom for me, studying the back of all those cards and, you know, learning the lore and seeing all these connections. So, yeah. So, you know, technically it's it's baseball, but only by the slimmest of leads. It's funny that you mentioned baseball cards as an entry point. I think for a lot of people and I don't know when this stopped. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm I was born in 82, but I was collecting baseball cards up through, you know, the mid 90s. Yeah. I feel like now the card market is all speculation and kids don't play with cards where they used to, but that was a huge piece of baseball fandom for, I think for a lot of us growing up. Yeah. Um, not just the stats, but, oh gosh, I learned so much from the, the back of cards, everything from the little factoids tops used to have, like, you know, where it'd be like Johnny Vandermeer pitched two no hitters and consecutive starts. And, you know, there's so much like, that's incredible. Who's Johnny Vandermeer. And, you know, you've gone from there. <laughs> To, you know, those little agate type um, uh, things like I was fascinated to see even in 76 that there were players, uh, Tim McCarver comes to mind, who were like played Major League Baseball in the 50s. Yeah. Like, how could that be? And, you know, there were teams that didn't exist anymore. There were occasionally guys who had been 
senators or cold 45s. I was like, what is that? And, you know, as a seven-year-old kid, that was, that was just so much fun. Like I wanted to know everything, but I hear young kids and, you know, fortunately I've gotten to a place that's, um, that's good for baseball and Star Wars. Like I, you know, I have, I'm a lunatic about this. I have every Mets card um, to a certain point that ever existed. Um, And I quit because suddenly there were insert cards and all this nonsense. Um, and I make my own custom Mets for all the, the like, you know, little cup of coffee guys who never got Mets cards, which is just insane. Um, so I'm, I'm nuts about this, but I, I came around to a good point and it was brought about by exactly what you said that all these cards being so speculative, et cetera. Of, I just, you know, now I collect what I like and I leave the rest alone. And, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan or a DC fan or anything else, <laughs> It's also, it's a highly good policy. Just like what you like. Otherwise you'll go insane. That goes so against though, this like inbred collector's spirit that we all have. Oh yeah. I know. Every, every variant cover and every, every hollow foil card and all this bullshit that really doesn't mean anything, but you know, it becomes something very real to you when you're in that collector's mindset. Oh um, yeah. I'm going to go back to your homemade cards for a second. What sure. is your favorite of the homemade cards you made? Like, who is the guy that you're really proud of, the uh, the homemade card that you, you turned out? Oh, God, there's so many. What, what I do, which is a little weird, is I, I want that moment where you pick up something that looks like an old Topps card. And I don't sell these or anything, so don't – hopefully Topps Ninjas don't come through the ceiling. Um, <laughs> but what I want is that moment where you – pick up the card and if you collected that year you swear that's one you just missed somehow like i wanted mm-hmm. to fool the eye for a moment um so i go for like utter fidelity which has been its own interesting journey but um i found a wonderful picture after years of searching of, of dallas green as a mets pitcher which mm-hmm. was like a week that made a perfect um 1966 card that's a really good one. um oh i, I made a steve chilcott a 1970 Steve Chilcott, this wonderful actual top shot of, uh, of Chilcott in that sort of, you know, catcher, um, you know, spring training pose, mm-hmm. you know, in catcher's mode with no cure on. It's a terrible idea. I'm really proud of that one. And I tried, you know, once again, I tried to make it like, what would a 1970s, 70 card of Steve Chilcott look like? What would it say about him on the back? Things like that. Can you get the language right? So there are a lot of them I love, but um, that was re- that was a really fun one to try to bring back. And I made the missing Rusty Stops. If you're a hardcore card geek, you know Rusty Stop isn't in the um, the '73 and '74 set. Or no, I've got that wrong. '72, '73, I think it is. But so I, I made those, even though you know one of them was an Expos card. So was, you go down a rabbit hole, you wind up in a crazy place. That, that's the definition of rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I have many such examples from my own life that I will not share right now, but trust me, I understand. Oh, yeah. No, we really are long lost brothers. Let's get a little spooky. <laughs> so let's talk about your, your Mets fandom. You say you remember, you know, your mom jumping up and down for Rusty Staub. You remembered those, you know, those really rough late 70s, early 80s teams. What was the was there a, a game, a player, a moment that like lit the spark for your intense fandom that set you that they hit the nitrous and sent you just on the way. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, a, it's kind of a strange one. My favorite player, my first favorite player was Rusty Staub. And then the Mets exiled him to the Tigers for having opinions, which, you know, they did in that day. 
Um, my second favorite player, incredibly randomly, was Mike Phillips, a you know a mid seventies utility guy who was. I mean, he's the kind of guy every team needs, but if you get nine of them, you you know you finish in fifth place. Um, right. <laughs> but um, except for Mike this year with the Mets, when they have they have five of those guys right now, or you know eight of those guys right now, and they're in first place. So who knows? And it's somehow working. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's great. It's like yeah, it's like the Roadrunner cartoon. They're walking across <laughs> the abyss, and yes. it's fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, Mike Phillips became a because I had getting back to the the other weird part of my life, I had written some sort of kids space story, superhero, something in which I think by coincidence, the, the, um, the main character's name was Mike Phillips. So I was just gobsmacked when it turned out there was an actual Met named Mike Phillips and he was immediately my favorite player. And um, so I was like the world's biggest the kids would say now a Mike Phillips Stan. And I thought he should obviously, you know, play every day because he would be the MVP and he would lead us to the world series. Um, none of which was true, except one wonderful day. I turned in and I checked to see if this was real, but it was. I, I tuned in probably 76 or 77 to watch the Mets at, um, at Wrigley Field playing the Cubs. And uh, Mike Phillips, you know, we had a leadoff. He hit a, a leadoff home run. Um, and they, they, they had the old um, WOR thing at the time where the only way they acknowledged this was they put the met players name up in big yellow letters on the bottom of the screen. I was just thrilled. And I think he hit for the cycle that day. He was player of the week, like for this one wonderful, wonderful week, like Mike Phillips was everything I imagined he would be and was sure that he could be. And that funny little week, that was what, what supercharged it after that, you know, I really believed kind of, you know, by being a good enough fan, you could make miracles. happen. <laughs> <laughs> Those magical weeks are so much fun. And oh, it's yeah. almost it's almost more fun when you recognize that this will never happen again. Like going back to earlier this season, like the Pat Mazika week, right? Yeah. Like that guy's probably never going to have a hugely important major league career, but watching that guy have three walk-offs or whatever it was, yeah. you know, those, those weeks are just magical. There's so much is another obsession of mine too. Another thing I'm obsessed about is met ghosts. The guys who were on the roster, but never got in a game. Okay. Yep. Um, and Mazika was that last year. He was called mm-hmm. up actually, I think twice. Twice. Yes. Then, yeah. Never got in. And I looked at, I remember, I, of course, have a baseball card for him, like some terrible Columbia Fireflies card from years ago. <laughs> and um, they have a special page, like the ghost page. And um, and I, you know, I looked at his minor league stats and I was like, I think that's probably the closest Pat Mazika ever gets. And I felt terrible for him because that just must be an awful feeling, particularly if you're one of the ghosts who never gets into a major league game anywhere. And so, right. you know, I was like triply, quadruply thrilled, whatever it is for him. When he not only got his at bat, but then suddenly did wonderful things. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, I often find that there's this divide that happens when we're kids where you're a sports person or you're a something else person, right? Like whether it's yeah. whether it's sports and music or sports yeah. and comics or sports and whatever. Did you ever find that your conflicting loves of baseball and sci-fi ever sort of came into conflict with another like did you have friends who were into both or was it very um you know separate and divided when you were growing up yeah very separate and divided and that's only you know it's only begun to change i think in the last decade um Mm -hmm. you know now oh my god every baseball team has as many star wars nights as it can get on the calendar um (laughs) right (laughs) um 
Yeah, no, it was it was very jocks versus nerds when I was a kid, and I it, and some of that is still true. And I, I I've done my best to try to kind of fight against that. Like I like to say, you know, I say to my my um, my Star Wars fans, uh, fan friends, I'm like, I'm like, look, this is just the same thing. It's just epic sagas and desperate mm-hmm. hope and soaring emotions, except it's not scripted. That's the only difference. But um, and, you know, I, I say to my Met fans, friends, like, they really like, you're like, you hang out with guys dressed as Wookiees, like, really? And I'm like, I'm like, you're wearing the top half of a David Wright costume. costume like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, you're just kind of a half-assed cosplayer. So, you know, don't throw stones, Matt. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's closer than people realize. And uh, also, you know, as a, look, as a, as kind of a, a, lifelong nerd who just could kind of speak jock um you know i'm like dudes we won (laughs) we run every front office like come on enough enough it is amazing how valuable that being able to speak jock is Mm -hmm. i I, i've often compared myself i have a cousin who is as nerdy as i am but can't do that and there are times it's a it's a christmas party or a birthday party and no one wants to talk star wars with him and he just sits in the corner and is kind of upset you know no you got to be able to speak everyone's language a little bit but as a kid i remember specifically like bringing a comic book to school and someone saying i thought you liked baseball like, yeah. well, I, I, I like both of these things and I don't, I don't understand why there's such a, uh, such a distance between them. But now, like you said, now it's, it's getting really, I mean, part of it is just that everything is mainstream now, right? There is yeah. all the stuff that I was into when I was a kid that was, that was, I was weird for liking it. Now, all of that is mainstream. I mean, my day job is working with kids and, and almost all the kids I work with play D and D to some degree. And like, yeah. you wouldn't admit that out loud, in the eighties, that was, that was a problem. If you played D and D, you know, Uh, and I know that you have done some, some star Wars stuff in the role-playing sphere. Yeah. Um, And I want to talk about that for a second, because, you know, so much of role-playing, at least from my experience has been the invention portion of it, you know, creating your character, creating your settings, all of that. And obviously there are, there are guides and books, but is it an extra special level of fun to be able to, to invent and this is true for your writing too, I suppose, to invent mm-hmm. stories that are set in this wonderful world that you love. Is there an extra joy you get from doing that than just playing, you know, your regular old garden variety D&D campaign? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, D&D was what really got me interested in, in what we now call world building. I didn't know that was what you called it then. I don't think we had that term. But, um, yeah, I mean, I... I Similarly, I, you know, I, D&D kind of went through this brief vogue when I was a kid and then fell into that sort of strange abyss you talked about where you couldn't um, admit it happened. Though, <laughs> actually, in college, it was very funny. I found a, I had made up the Jedi Knights as a first edition AD&D character class, like <laughs> taking a shot at it. Nice. And then I, I, I brought it to my college friends to kind of fess up and be like, look at this thing I did. And all of us, this, I don't know why this surprised me. All of us, it turned out, had played like, you know, a billion hours of AD&D. And so suddenly we're having this like long, passionate argument over what I got right and what I got wrong. And I thought to myself, oh, we could have been playing D&D for four years. Why, why, the, why the hell didn't we do that? Um, anyway, but yeah, I mean, that kind of, you know, as a, as a 
a D&D, no surprise, dungeon master. I mean, what I mostly like to do was just noodle around with my campaign and come up with stuff. And actually playing D&D was often just kind of a pain and arguments about snacks and who didn't show up. Um, so, and yeah, there's a definitely a direct line from that right to Star Wars, um, starting with the RPG stuff and then writing, you know, I've written a, a huge number of kind of lore books um, that are really all about world building. And then, you know, for me, the, the interesting challenge was figuring out how to integrate that into writing fiction and figure out, mm. you know, how to make kind of world building and lore support the fiction as opposed to competing with telling the story, um, investing in the characters. That was something I really had to learn with help from some kind people who, uh, you know, showed me what was working and what didn't. It's uh, it's amazing to look at, you know, all the things that sort of we do as kids and, and what those things eventually translate into in our adult lives. But it seems like in a lot of ways, you've been able to take the things that you loved as a kid and directly be involved with them as an adult. So talk to me about your, your first experience getting a gig with Star Wars. How did that happen? And, and what did it feel like to be able to to, you know, to check that off the dream to do list? Um, yeah, it was it was um, I was. Back in the day, I was, I was a, approved by Lucasfilm to be a writer. Um, and it was originally actually for uh, role-playing. It was for um, the, role, the Star Wars role-playing game was then under the, under the aegis of West End Games, which no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Um, I was approved for that. And then West End Games, which turned out actually to be like a, a shoe company or something really weird with an offshoot in role-playing. It was a very strange story. Um, they hit this real, all these real financial problems. And so this, this dream of mine kind of disappeared. And I thought, oh, I was crushed. I was like, I, you know, I'd gotten the green light. And then before I could ever write something, like it was gone. Um, I got a second chance. I became the, the books columnist for the Star Wars Insider. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm was a subscriber. Uh, yeah, great. And yeah, and it, that was a lot of fun for multiple reasons, though. Because one, you know, I got to actually have some, some Star Wars writing uh, to my name, but also, you know, every month I would talk to Star Wars novelists and talk to them about what they were doing and get to quiz them about how they did it. So it was actually a great apprenticeship for a, um, you know, a budding fiction writer. Um, but yeah, when when I started doing it and when I finally got to contribute some stuff to, to this wonderful shared universe, um, I mean, it was a I mean, it was a, literally a dream come true, of course, but I was also a little nervous about it because, and this, this was true of Star Wars and the Mets, like everybody had always assumed I'd be a sports writer, um, which I certainly could have been. And I decided not to be because I understood that if you did that, you couldn't be a fan anymore. Right. And that was not worth it to me. Like I was much more, I was much more interested in being a Mets fan than being, having access to the Mets, et cetera. I couldn't imagine liking the Mets more in that situation, I was pretty sure I'd wind up liking them less. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the funny thing is through, through faith and fear with Greg, um, you know, I wound up kind of being sort of one anyway, like eventually, you know, we did get to talk to the Mets and go to games and, you know, write about it all the time. But um, the link between the two things was in both cases, I was a little, I was a little scared about that. Um, with Star Wars, you know, the old adage, you know, if you want to, if you like sausage, don't find out how it, how it's made. Right. Right. I was very conscious of that when I started writing for writing Star Wars stuff. Cause I knew 
you know, I, I'd go back and I'd see a certain amount of things behind the scenes and was I really going to like Star Wars? And, and happily, the answer is yes. I've liked it even more because, you know, I've never met anyone involved in the creative process for Star Wars who's not a gigantic, crazy, dorky fan like you and me and doesn't love it to pieces. And, you know, I've act- so I actually like it more. I've made some great friends doing that. So, you know, that side of the equation, thankfully, uh, turned out really beautifully, uh, for which I'm very grateful. I'm not sure that's true in a lot of in some other <laughs> intellectual properties. So now, um, let's get real nerdy here for a second. Give me some of your favorite, like, what's your favorite ship in Star Wars? What's your favorite spacecraft? Oh, it's the Millennium Falcon, hands down. Because I mean, it's a it's a setting. It's kind of the kids' clubhouse, treehouse. It's a character in its own right. It's super cool. Yeah, everything for me begins and ends with the Falcon. I've been obsessed with it since I was a, a well, since I was eight. <laughs> How do you feel about some of the uh, like additions to the lore? Like, you know, in Solo, we see L three become part of the Falcon. We see that there used to be like a a different front to the Falcon that gets knocked off. You know, yeah. does does all that feel like sacrilege to you because it's 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 sullying the vision you had, or do you like the uh, the additions that have been added to it? No, I mean, one thing about actually getting to be, you know, to play a small part in this shared storytelling is you have to, you can't let your own kind of ideas become dogma. You've got to be willing to let go of them because this is always going to change. And even then, like, you know, L3, I mean, back in Empire Strikes Back, we had the idea that the Falcon communicated, had this weird dialect, was kind of rude. Back in the old expanded universe, that introduced the idea that it had multiple computer brains. So mm-hmm. the idea that things had been kind of subsumed. So that, that actually all worked really well. And I got to write a little uh, Easter egg because Solo hadn't come out yet uh, to L3 into the Last Jedi novelization, which was super fun. And exa- a good example, actually, of, of a little bit of lore supporting the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that, was, that was pretty neat. And actually for the, um, the Force Awakens... I did the uh, cross sections book um, mm-hmm. with all the ships and one of them was the, the Falcon. And so that was great fun. I got to adjust some of exactly what you're talking about. Some of the new stuff we'd seen and how did it work? Like when the poison gas starts, like what had happened here, what had changed? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a new like bed in the holds where, um, uh, where, uh, Chewie winds up recuperating that we'd never seen before. So who added that and the new mm-hmm. dish and yeah, all that was a lot of fun. And um, that was, you know, and that was, that was really a good one for me personally. Cause I was actually, I'd never really gotten to engage with the Falcon in what I did. And so, you know, getting to write a little bit of lore there was, I mean, that was a, that was a blast. Who was your favorite character to wield a lightsaber? To wield a lightsaber. Oh goodness. Um, I guess, you know, you kind of got to go by your, era there um for the prequels it, it's uh Qui-Gon Jinn who I always thought I thought was one of the most interesting character in the prequels and uh, it was sad we we had him so briefly a, a great performance a really interesting character and just um so yeah it was him and then for you know for the original trilogy it's got to be Luke um you know Luke is Luke is the reason all this stuff works ultimately and then for the sequel trilogy Oh God. I mean, I, I love a lot of those characters. I loved um, Ray, but I, you know, I'll give it to Finn who counted briefly as a lightsaber wielder, but 
Very briefly, but, yes. Yeah, I, I think he's such a wonderful character. He's kind of the he's the conscience of the sequel trilogy and a really interesting character in his own right. Like this brainwashed child soldier who, mm-hmm. despite it all, has this moral compass that won't allow him to you know, to do what he's been trained to do and strikes off on his own and um, does something very different and struggles with it and winds up in the right place. I, I think he's just a terrific character and one, um, one I always enjoy um, sometimes writing about, but, you know, more often reading about or, or yeah. following his adventures as a fan. Uh, favorite droid. Ooh, favorite droid. Oh, that's a good one. Um, oh, it's, it's got to be R2. I mean, he's such a great character in his own right. Though, so, um, they, they actually made a t-shirt for me. I'm a, a firm believer that C-3PO is a monster. If you, if you actually pay attention to what C-3PO yeah. is saying, like he's out for himself. He'll sell out all his friends. He's just, <laughs> he's a bad dude. The fact that he has this, you know, this English accent makes, and, and is sort of fussy makes us think he's a good guy. He's not. He'll sell you down the river in a second. I'm saying this for the benefit of our listeners. I'm sure you already know this, but supposedly Lucas wanted that voice to originally be that of a used car salesman. And That's that right. would have totally changed. It would have been so much easier to make to reach to see his evil if yep. he was if he was sleazy instead of uh this butler, this proper butler character, you know. Yep. Yeah. No, simultaneously Anthony Daniels supplement voice, like you cannot separate them. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, the which kind of makes the character more fun. But yeah, he's a used car dealer. He's going to he's going to he's going to take you for a ride. <laughs> yeah. Uh, favorite bounty hunter. Oh, it's 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 Boba Fett. I mean, you know, I you you you're you told me when you were born, so you were probably a little too late for this. But, you know, an earthquake for us as as kind of OG Star Wars fans was you could get Boba Fett as an action figure before you ever knew who he was. And that was just such a, a, to use a Noah Syndergaard word, a trebuchet for imagination. Like, who was this guy? And he came with like, you know, Western spurs and this great outfit. And we were just off to the races with him. And, and if you happen to miss the holiday special, you had no idea who he was. Yeah, yeah. He was the holiday special. He showed up in the newspaper strips. I mean, mm-hmm. one of my favorite things, um, Lucasfilm, because it was so much smaller at the time, sent the character out to the... Um, the uh, the annual parade in this little town called San El- uh, Anselmo mm-hmm. um, up in Marin County. So you know if you were in, they didn't say anything, they didn't announce it, but just one day in like '78, you were a little kid walking down the street, like there's Darth Vader and this random new Star Wars character, which is like, and it didn't go viral or anything. It's like on the local paper on the front page, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. That's amazing. I yeah. never heard that before. Um. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you think about Star Wars, do you primarily think of it as a film franchise? Do you think of it as a book franchise, a television franchise? I... Aside from this Mets podcast, I host a Star Wars podcast called Force Ghost Coast to Coast. And oh, I love it. Uh, not my name, unfortunately. Someone else came up with it. But I, one of our co-hosts is almost like a movies-only person. That's what she yeah. kind of identifies the movies. The one co-host is purely television. He feels like yeah. the Clone Wars is the best thing Star Wars ever did. And I kind of am the omnivore that takes it all in. So how do, yeah. you, how do you sort of see the franchise first and foremost? Um, I, I like the term omnivore. I mean, that, that's, that's who I am, but I mean, the way I, I think about it is, I mean, when I, when I was a kid and, you know, my formative years as stars fan, we got a movie every three years, which now seems like impossibly long time to wait. Uh, there was a monthly Marvel comic series. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the holiday special, which we already knew you weren't supposed to talk about and we're supposed to pretend had never happened. <laughs> Um, there was a newspaper comic, but my parents, um, in Long Island, it was only a Newsday, which my parents didn't get. So I never got to read that. Um, and then occasionally just randomly, there'd be like a novel would show up and that was it. And so now when, you know, we, we sometimes there's, there's sometimes multiple Star Wars TV shows in a given week. Um, and movies on a pretty regular schedule and a steady stream of comics and books and video games. And um, I mean, this is just, if you could have told my young self as a huge Star Wars fan, like this was the world that was coming, I would have been like, give me the, the fast forward button on life so I can get there. Cause I cannot imagine a world so great as this. And then, you know, on top of that to actually get to contribute a little bit, I mean, is pinch yourself black, uh, black and blue. But uh, yeah, I love it all. And I love watching Star Wars, you know, figure out what stories belong where and how to how to tell them best and how to make them all uh, link up. But there's, um, you know, the, the flip side of being an omnivore is who, no matter who you are, there's something in there for everybody. And uh, yeah. I think that's part of what makes Star Wars so great. There's something in there for everybody and it's ever renewing. So if you're new to all this, you know, you don't have to get a master's degree in the lore. You can just start because there's something new where you'll be on an equal footing. The uh, so, I, you know, I loved the Star Wars films as a kid. I, I watched the Ewok TV films like I, I was I was all about that. But when I was in sixth or seventh grade, my family took a trip to Florida. We drove to Florida and in Florida, across the street from the condo we had rented was a bookstore. Yeah. And I had bought the first of the Zahn uh trilogy the the thrawn trilogy um and i read it like the whole way home from florida and that completely unlocked for me what star wars could be because to me star wars something you saw on tv that was after the comics were really popular and i was young whatever it was but that just unlocked it for me and so I love the novels. I love the TV yeah. stuff. I, th- I think Ahsoka Tano is one of the best characters yeah. in Star Wars, period, end of story. No qualifiers needed. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it's fantastic. Like you said, that we're living in a world where all this is possible. It's, yeah. I, I often think back to like, you know, lonely 11 year old Brian to be like, just hang in there, man. <laughs> some, <laughs> some, someday you're going to be surrounded by people who love all the same stuff you love yeah. and it, it's going to be great. Um, all right, so I, I do want to talk about the last Jedi novelization just for a second. I, I really, 
I'm typically somebody who doesn't read the novelizations. I know that's probably mm-hmm. blasphemy to say to yeah. you, um, but I I have read all of the uh, all of the new trilogy novelizations. Yeah. And what I loved about the Last Jedi novelization was I felt like you you never strayed too far from the script, but there was so much depth, specifically in the struggle inside of Luke. And I really loved the way that you brought Luke you brought Luke's inner thoughts and inner feelings to the forefront. When you were writing that, did you feel like how do I say this? Were you trying to make it so that people wouldn't see Luke in such a bad like some people watch that movie and just hate Luke in The Last Jedi? <laughs> and I never got that feeling from him. But were you trying to bring about a more relatable side to that character? Were you trying to underscore why he was doing what he was doing? Like what what were you thinking when when getting into what Luke was was feeling in those moments? Well, the the trick there was um you know, a, a novelization writer's job is, first of all, to be absolutely loyal to the story as somebody else has put it together. In this case, Ryan Johnson. Like, you can't ever be working against that. You have to think, like, I'm presenting Ryan's story um, in a way that's kind of an adjunct to what's on the screen. So, you know, the, the what I was looking for is, like, you know, what are things that Ryan didn't have time to do on screen or that work better on the page? Mm -hmm. Um, and then do that while being loyal to his story. Um, My starting point was, you know, Ryan doesn't have time to write this novelization, so I'm going to do it. But that's the only reason I'm here. And I think that's, you know, that was really important for kind of keeping the ego in check and doing that right. Um, So there's a challenge there. Like in in what you see in TLJ, um, we all, well, not all of us, but most of us were coming to Last Jedi as people who knew Luke Skywalker or thought we knew him and we're trying to figure all this out. But, you know, that for, you know, Luke is not the protagonist of TLJ, it's Ray. And for much of that, of that story, Luke is a, a riddle that she's trying to figure out. She's trying to figure out the same things we're trying to figure out. And so that meant to be faithful to that as the novelization writer, I could not be in Luke's head until very late, until af- essentially after Ray gets fed up and leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that, you know, that was the way to to be loyal to that story. So I had a, a very long chunk of the book where I couldn't be kind of interior with Luke. Um, and but I knew, you know, you like me, like a lot of readers coming to that, that's what we really wanted. So actually the, I wrote a prologue for that novelization. Um, which, which broke the internet for about do. six hours. <laughs> um, and that was, and, but part of the reason for that prologue, I, I saw a way it could really support the story, but I also thought it would give us a chance to kind of scratch that itch by going back in time. I could actually briefly put us in Luke's head and give us some little hints to what's coming and, and, and then go back and then kind of sit on Ray's shoulder uh, for the rest of it. But, you know, the, I mean, you know, speaking more broadly, I mean, you know, the, the last Jedi um, has been received differently in some quarters. I think that's safe to say, Um, but you know, one thing I was actually surprised by that when it happened, but then I remembered that, you know, I had read the script um, quite a bit earlier for various um, projects 
And I, I, I flash back and I remember that when I read it, my first reaction was not immediate like devotion and love to it. I was kind of like, huh. And I needed some time to sit with it and kind of think about it. And I was like, you know, everybody deserves that chance. If I felt that way, you know, other people feel that way and that's okay. Um, but, you know, I think that was in there from the beginning. I mean, this is meant, you know, Luke says, you know, to, to Ray, this is not going to go the way you think. And it's meant to be a movie that challenges us in some ways and, and confounds what we think of in a big popcorn movie. And, you know, that's part of it. Um, the thing I think that it's detract where I disagree with that movie's detractors and, you know, people could like or dislike whatever they want, to be clear. But where I, where I disagree with some of that movie's most passionate detractors is that, you know, yeah, Ryan is challenging a lot of our assumptions there about heroism and things like that. But, you know, at the end, what Luke does winds up being a reaffirmation of them. It's not a dismantling of them or a deconstruction of them. I mean, Luke says caustically to Ray, you know, what you thought I'd go down and face, go out and face down the whole first order with a laser sword. And in the end of the movie, that's exactly what he does. Mm -hmm. So for me, it winds up being a, a reaffirmation of all those things we thought about the character and heroism. And in fact, in that coda, we see that, you know, what he's done is going to inspire an entire galaxy forevermore. So, you know, stories work or don't work for people and um, differently. And that's not my business, but for me, that's what really brings that movie full circle. And I tried very hard as my, in my job as a novelizer to be true to that and bring that across. The thing I always say about that, that's my second favorite Star Wars movie. I love, love The Last Jedi. And my defense of it is when people bring that exact point up, I always say, how does Luke defeat the Emperor? He throws away his lightsaber. Yeah. He refuses to fight. How does Luke take down the First Order? He refuses to fight. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it, nonviolence. He he's essentially the Gandhi of the Star Wars universe, yeah. where through nonviolence he he enacts great change. Yeah. And I think it's a beautiful moment that he's able to let his friends escape, and he does so without dropping a shed of without shedding a drop of blood for anybody. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful. I think that's I think that's the most Luke way that movie could have ended. Yeah, and absolutely. people who don't see that, I think, are just, you know, and I think it's the same thing with the prequels, you know, in a lot of senses. And, and I have come around on a lot of the prequel stuff. I think yeah. like a lot of folks, I had a very knee jerk reaction at first, and I, I still don't love all the decisions in the prequels. But the thing that messed with me the most was that when I was growing up, all I wanted was to be a Jedi Knight. I thought it was the coolest shit in the universe. Yeah. And then you see that they are boring politicians. <laughs> and yeah. I think initially it's very hard to accept that. Yeah. And I think if you grew up thinking Luke Skywalker was the most badass guy on the planet, or in the galaxy rather, and then you see him actively not fight, that's just hard to that's hard to square that circle. But I think if you if you pay attention to Star Wars, that's not outside of Luke's character at all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I could talk Star Wars all day, but I want to let you get back to your life. Where can folks find you on the internet? And, and what's what's one of your works that you would like people to check out for Star Wars? What's what's the definitive Jason Fry Star Wars work? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Um, I wrote a book, uh, The Weapon of a Jedi. It's, you know, it's it's marketed as a middle grade novel for kids. But if you're, you know, if that, don't let that throw you. If that's it's on my shelf. Throws you. All right. Um, you know, it's just, the language is no different than any adult novel. It's just shorter. Um, 
I mentioned that one because it's it's a Luke Skywalker adventure set right after the original Star Wars. Um, and it also it's it's really a book about the force and Luke's relationship with the force. And it it made me rethink the character and really kind of dive into the force. And I could not have written The Last Jedi without Weapon of a Jedi. For me, there's a direct link between the two of them mm-hmm. um, in that one. I also I wrote a, a four book series uh, tied into Rebels called Servants of the Empire, which um, you know got kind of lost in the marketplace, unfortunately. But um, that's about a, a kid named Zare Leonis, who's an Imperial cadet who winds up um, he's trying to find his sister, who is an Imperial cadet who's gone missing, and uh, that was a really that was a really fun thing to write. Um, ties into Rebels, ties into the the classic trilogy, but also looks ahead to the sequel trilogy. And I think people would really enjoy it. Uh, if people want to find me, I'm, you know, I'm over at Faith and Fear in Flushing, um, cataloging the Mets and what happens every other day with, with Greg Prince and also on Twitter, Jason Seafry. And uh, if you want to talk Star Wars, you can, I mean, you can find me not on faith and fear that'd be a little weird but yeah look me up on twitter or uh i also hang out on the the force.net's literature board and always happy to talk the galaxy far far away and writing and anything else on people's minds well folks thanks for listening we truly appreciate it please go to amazingavenue.com for all your mets needs and while you're at it go to faith and fear and as well Give that site some love because it absolutely deserves it. You can find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. This podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. If you can get a podcast there, you can probably get Amazing Avenue in conversation there. Please check out the rest of our great podcasts from Complex Queens, Unformidable, A Pod of Their Own, and Amazing Avenue Audio, the show. Jason is on Twitter again at Jason C. Fry. I am on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. And until next time, let's go Mets. Mm-hmm.